0: Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. We watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. This week, is a Dan pick, we are going to be doing The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, the 1964 musical directed by Jacques Demy with all the music by Michel Legrand. Um, It's a movie that I saw only for the first time maybe a year or two ago. I was by myself at a revival theater. I I was watching the movie through my headphones. It was a it was a, an unbelievable experience. I came home and I kept telling everybody, "You've got to see this! You've got to see this!" I watched it again a few nights ago for the podcast. Mike just saw it for the first time. I have so much to say about this, but in the interest of keeping to our schedule, Mike, you go first. What was your overall take on the movie?
1: Sure. Um, so some some background. Uh, I have a lot of experience with French new wave film and and trying to you know. French films that are working against the studio system, or films that are imported uh, from America, and and that's one that's one branch of what's going on here. There's something there's something obviously uh, against the grain of what I would call classical Hollywood cinema going on in the way that the story is told. Um, a, a musical is one way to describe it. It's more of an operetta where all sure. the all the lines are sung, and essentially the the entire form is is one long song where people take different parts coming in now.
0: Exactly like the mechanic complains about where he says, oh, in the beginning scene where he has that joke, nobody wants to hear someone sing the whole time.
1: That's right. So it's it's exactly like um, it's exactly like Sondheim, if you like Sondheim, or it's, it's against the conventional musical. The conventional musical says there's regular life and then sometimes there's this spontaneous overflow of emotion that comes out in music. But what's happening in the umbrellas of Cherbourg is that we have uh, a kind of like musical field that can encompass all different kinds of emotion, but a uh, banal emotion, a strong, devastating emotion, happiness, sadness, and that and that the music will follow you, and that this is this is just how things come out of the mouth. So that's that's the form. The structure is not like a musical at all, or like a or like a classical musical, because a lot of. A lot of these things are meant to be a sort of light entertainment, whereas what we get is a deeply gritty and realist love story between um, a 19 year old soldier, a 20 year old soldier and a 17 and a year old girl. Um, uh, over, over time. Uh, and we've dealt with some of these stories before. So we've we covered, for example, Cold War on the podcast. And the umbrellas of Cherbourg, in case anybody thinks that this is too light, fair for them, or it's not going to appeal to them, it's like as if in Cold War, they sang all their lines to one another. It's, it's, just, as, it's just as gritty and just as real. Um, so Dan, what was your overall take?
0: Well, you know, um, Mike, you've known me for a long time, and I am sometimes prone to irony and sarcasm. But when I watch this movie, I, uh, I get such a lump in my throat. I, it's reminding me of when, not that I'm going to compare myself to Bogart, but might as well, it's my podcast, is when Claude Rains tells him in Casablanca, you're a rank sentimentalist. And that's exactly what this movie brings out of me. Um, when, when he's leaving it on the train at the end of the first act. I sit there with my knuckles in my mouth, trying to hold it together. And my stomach feels like I've just done 30 sit-ups or a hundred sit-ups um, because uh, I'm trying, I'm trying not to uh, start emoting. I think everything you said is right. Yes. It's not, the, it's not like um, a traditional musical. There's no dance numbers in it, for example. And I tend to think that Hollywood musical versions of Theatrical triumphs are pretty leaden, they're pretty plotting, they, they can never really recapture, except for Singing in the Rain, which was a, designed to be a, a film. Um, but I think we have to talk about a couple of things. One is that, you know, why are they singing? Well, they're singing because they're constantly emoting, whether or not those emotions you said are, are just banal about what are we going to do about the store or I'm in love. Right. And, um, the, you know, the color scheme as well. Why does it pop so much? Well, I think it pops so much and it's so beautiful because, you know, they keep popping. Right. We both, so
1: we both had a mutual teacher in common who, who one of his lines was uh, love is a literary convention. Yes. And, and this movie, both in its form and its content at all levels, what you just said, the visual level with the pastel color, uh, with with the song, and then with what's going on with the characters, and and of course the casting. I mean, you know, everybody in the cast is straight out of Central Casting. Our heroine is, uh, you know, almost almost comically beautiful, as though she had been drawn or illustrated, um, and and used to used to effect which would be obnoxious in other movies. When the when the when they're having dinner with her suitor and she finds the bean in the dessert, and so she, has to, choose, she right. has to choose the king, and her mom set it up so that there's only one man at the table. The frame of her, the frame of her face is the director telling you, I know that this is obnoxious, but you're going to take it as real for the moment, which, which of course I do. And so this is all playing within convention. Everything is a literary convention uh, in, in this uh, in this movie except the way that the drama plays out which which adheres to no convention which it which adheres to chance
0: Yes, which we'll talk about in the end. And, and certainly, yeah, she's so beautiful. I mean, it, it, you watch this and you think, well, there's somebody that actually could play Helen of Troy. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, but going back to, you know, um, the love as a literary convention. All of these conventions that we can laugh at all work, though. I think they all work beautifully, right? And one of the things that I think works, is like, for example, when, when they're gliding down the street and they're clearly on a platform and they're getting pulled when he's by his bicycle and she's crying, you know, like... That's not, that might strike people as funny. Um, the person I watched it with said, wait a minute, are they on a, a conveyor belt or something? And I'm like, yeah, because their feet don't touch the ground because they're in love. So all of, the, all of the things that strike you as weird when you first see the film, like the colors and the singing and the conveyor belt, they're not weird to them because when you're in love, that's not weird. That's, that's exactly how you feel. It's a perfect marriage of form and content. So you know the, the facts, quote unquote, of the movie aren't real, but the, but the emotions all are. And I think another thing we have to say at the beginning that I love about this film is that I want to allude to a book I know you've read, *Breakfast of Champions* by Kurt Vonnegut. Well, you may remember at the end of the book, Kurt um, uh, Kilgore Trout, the science fiction writer, is told by Kurt Vonnegut that he's only a literary creation. Do you remember what he says when he when he finds this out? He doesn't say, "Oh my God, that's crazy. How can that be?" He looks at Kurt Vonnegut and says, "Make me young. Make me young. Make me young." And I think that this film is such a great reminder of what it's like to be young and in love. It totally, totally, the first act of this film totally, totally captures that. All of the emotiveness and all the crying and, and waiting to sneak out behind the store. And when you watch it, you're filled with kind of nostalgia for that. And I think the film captures what it's like to be, to be young and in love beautifully. Well, then I have something to say. I think that's a perfect
1: encapsulation of part one, but I want to get into my moment, which is in, in the beginning of part three and the end of part two.
0: All right, I'll see you in part two.
1: Okay. Okay, so welcome back. In part two, of course, we like to talk about our favorite scenes or key scenes of the film. Dan, yours is before mine, you go first.
0: All right, mine was in part two where the word absence keeps coming up, right? There's a moment where she's looking out the window when she says, I would have died for him, so why haven't I died? And I think that part of the film is about these kids getting pulled out of Eden. And I'm calling them kids because I'm older than they are. They're getting pulled out of Eden into the real world. This is a film where, you know, it's not like um, they have a special thing and the world destroys them or like West side story. It's, it's, it's a film without villains. The mother could easily be a comic figure and she's kind of funny, but she's not entirely wrong. She's like a character from a Jane Austen novel. It's like you have to have a financial way forward to go through this. Um, you know, Mr. Cassard, he could be a, a, a terrible, terrible person, but he really is sincere. Like he really does love her. And I think that the film is about their journey out of Eden and how they kind of get pulled out of it. It also reminded me of um, there's, a, there's a thing that critics have written about in Othello called Fast Time. I forget who, what critic originated this. Maybe it was A.C. Bradley. But the idea that how could so much happen in, say, a day and a half in Othello? And the idea is that there's, there's, quote, unquote, Fast Time, where the intensity of emotions makes up for the shortness of the time. And I think that's something we have going on here. So Mr. Cassard falls in love with her as soon as he sees her. And you almost as a cynical Hollywood viewer, wait to find out what his dark side is or what he really wants. And he really doesn't want anything because the emotions and the time are all sped up. So I think that they, the, that fast time gets them in the first act to a period of emotional intensity. And then the fast time starts to go pull them out of Eden. But
1: I agree with you, but we do have to talk about one thing about um, Monsieur Cassard, which is this. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll make one other note. This is extra filmic. This is only if you're seeing the film in English, some of the subtitles in the version that I watched, the Criterion version, deliberately translate rough slang or curse words uh, as, uh, in, into um, a more palatable English in the first part. And then in the second part, people say what they mean. So for example, te uh, means, why don't you shut up? Like, v- like very harsh. And then you'll find in the first part that it's more like, be quiet. But then in the second part, if someone says F you, it comes out exactly as "fu" in, in English. But there's, but, so there's one other note subtlety that's lost and it has to do with uh, Monsieur Kassar, which is that when he's telling Jean-Viev, um, when her lover is telling Jean-Viev, her real lover is telling Jean-Viev that he loves her guy, he says, je t'aime. That means I love you, and it's, but it's a familiar I love you. It means I know you and I love you. What he says to her reflects the fact that he sees her from afar or a narrative distance, which is says, he says, je vous aime, which is like, is almost like I love thee. Uh, it, it's, an, it's an unfamiliar I love you. It's a distant I love you. And that, of course, is even when he explains to her mother how he loves her, right? He says, you know, I went through this terrible tragedy, and I was rejected, and I'm traveling the world. But since I saw your daughter, I knew that I loved her, which is, that's je vous aime, means I love you, but we don't know each other yet. Let's get to know each other, which is the opposite of, of how I take it that guy loves her, which is at, She's, she's, of course, beautiful, young, and full of youth, but so is he, and at, he loves her for how she makes him feel, but also for who she is. Great gloss on Mr., uh, Monsieur Cassard. So let's talk about your moment. Yeah, of course. Um, so my moment is, uh, I wanted to talk more about what you said about the, the kids getting pulled out of Eden, because it's it's funny to me that this structure doesn't collapse after part one, or in, in part one, it's fitting in the form is equal to the content, but of course, in part two and part three, it's not. Uh, they're not in love anymore. And but what lingers on, the lingering emotion, seems to support this musically. It's like the love between them creates the music or sustains the music, whereas it, it should have faded, but of course, it, it never does. And this is kind of nowhere more ugly than when, um, you know, he's uh, he's losing his mind. And first, he, first he goes to the bar to drink, but then he sees the table where the two of their them table. Had. When they, when they said goodbye. So he picks a fight with, with the guy at the bar and he goes down to the other bar where you pick up, you know, the, the prostitutes. Um, and the, he's talking to the one prostitute and goes home with her, uh, Jeannie, and she says, you can call me jean Viev if you want, which is, that's, uh, what that's signaling to me is the film telling you, of course, that he's still in love with jean Viev because, because we're, still, we're still singing. But there's something, there's something abhorrent and, and so painful as a viewer, as to hear him singing with the, with the prostitute while he's saying goodbye to her.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, I'll see you in part three. Hey
1: everyone, welcome back. Okay, so part three, we're talking about the title, the ending, key takeaways, et cetera. Uh, Dan, you look raring to go.
0: I am raring to go. I mean, first of all, what an ending. What an ending, unbelievable. So this reminds me of a couple things. And also I have a couple questions I'd just like to get your take on since this is how we talk about movies now. Sure. Um, what kind of ending is this? I was thinking about famous endings of films and in Casablanca, you probably have, you know, the most famous film ending. It's the great, sad, yet happy ending, right? They don't get to be together, but like, you know, Rick rejoins humanity. She's going to inspire Laszlo. We, we feel good about that. We, 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 we get the meaning. We get why they had a breakup, you know, and we leave the theater uplifted. You know, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Here, how you feel I think is a little different and I think it's harder to quantify. So I think that like, you know, to use a phrase you used in don't look now, these are the facts of the case. And again, this last scene is only five minutes long. She, she stops there at the Esso station, right? Which he had originally put away in the model of the Esso station in his bedroom. I'm never gonna do that now. So he actually gets his dream. He's with Madeline. Um, she comes in, they talk about the weather. They talk about why she's in Cherbourg what kind of gas she wants. There's a great bit where the guy comes in, do you want regular or super? And it's so tense, right? How pretty the tree is, her mom dying. Guy never smiles. He never smiles and says, I think you can go now. I, I take it that he doesn't want this all opened up again. The last line she says is, "You know, are you doing well? And he says, yes, very well. And then they leave. Madeleine and Francois come back, and then he smiles and gets all animated, and the camera goes up on the crane. Right. So I take it that you know it's 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 a, it's a life goes on, ending. It's sad because they must still have something for each other at some point, but it's also happy because they've each moved on, and there's no reason to doubt that you know, his, his marriage with Madeline is just a rebound kind of thing. It's, it's truly both. And just before, like I said, there's no villains in the movie. I think that it, it really is like real life. It's, I don't think they've settled. I think they've each gone to a different place. But there's that like one atomic particle in there, where, you know, linked by the kids' names, and, you know, and, and the things like that. So even in the banality of the Esso station at the end, there's kind of, there's comfort, there's a family. But it's, stra- it's a strange ending. So what's your take on it? So I I guess
1: my, my take is more of a formalist take, which is if, the, if everyone's singing, they must be in love. That's, that's the rules of the game. It le- so for example, that wouldn't be the rules of the game if everyone was singing uh, in their universe before they met. But of course this starts in media rest. So it starts with him getting ready. He's so excited to see her tonight. And, it, and it's the structure of their love, which is holding up, the, holding up the music. So for me, if you wanted to signal that as the director, you would, you would play the ending straight, you know, two years later or three years later, but of course they, they don't. So I take it as given kind of like the donate of the film that they, must, that they must still be in love. Um, I take it that guy doesn't allow, he's not allowing himself to be happy about anything unless it's a, it's a kind of performance. And that it's signaled for me in the way that he reacts to the Christmas tree. She says, she, is in, she knows what's going on and she's trying to acknowledge that there's something there. She says, my, what a beautiful Christmas tree. And he said, my wife did it, but it's mostly for the kid. He doesn't say yes it is this is my favorite time of year. He doesn't even try to pretend like he's like he's doing well to brush her off. There's there's something going on with him and I take it that he's real in front of her in a way that he's not um you know when when the kid is happy meaning he's not acting depressed around the kid the kid is running through the snow so he's he's playing around playing back that's not a that's not necessarily a kind of unhappiness but I take it that it's a kind of performative happiness or he's he's playing a kind of role that he thinks he should be playing. The same in jean Vieve's response to her kid, which is uh, if she wanted to force the issue, if she wanted something to happen, she'd take the kid. I, th- I think, of course, in my brain every time she pulls up that she's bringing the kid inside, but she's not. She's going to no. leave him and give him the option, do you want to meet her? No, I don't want to
0: meet her. Yeah. Because it's the same thing, it's like for, it's like the Christmas tree. Did you get the sense that, I got the sense that like, you know, because he keeps smoking and he keeps doing things with his hands in that last scene and that he's, he's holding back, like he doesn't like, even their small talk is painful. And then of course, when the movie's over, you think, well then what could he have possibly said to her? And, and there's no reason, like it's, it, that's why I think it's so good, it's like real life. Like there's no, there's no like blistering argument. There's no, like nothing just kind of happens. No it's the no absence. What?
1: There's no recrimination.
0: Yeah, there's no recrimination. It's just, I hope you're doing well. I hope you are too. But they've each moved on. I mean, I love how the, both women have their hair done differently. That's a great sign that like things are different now. And she's clearly made it with her big, you know, her big updo. And, um, you know, Madeline got her hair cut. But it's, um, I mean, like, what was your emotional, what emotional register did you hit when you, when you saw the ending for the first time?
1: Uh, I, ha- regret. Yeah. Regret. Uh, we, we don't know. We, we are not told why Guy does not write more often. This is, le- it's left for the viewer to try to understand. Now, it could be because he actually, it's more dangerous than he thought and he thought he was gonna die. He was in he, the hospital. He, he, you know, he, get, he tells you, he comes back with a limp and that he got blown up by a grenade on an ambush, but then he says, it's not such a big deal. Right. We don't know if he got distracted with somebody else, but if he got distracted with somebody else that doesn't necessarily explain why you know, four or five years later, now with a wife and a kid, he's following her out into the snow because he wants to see the, the car drive away wow. uh, for the last time. And, and that is, th- there's something in there in that ambiguity, I think, that, that, that creates regret because his thoughts are ambiguous, whereas hers are easily uh, legible to us as the viewer.
0: Well, that ambiguity, of course, is, is, first of all, it's so much like real life. Like, forget about the singing in the college party. I mean, that, the awkwardness of seeing, like, an ex and just, and, and thinking you're going to have all of the Humphrey Bogart lines, but all you can say is, oh, yeah, it's, it's a Christmas tree. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, what kind of guest do you want? Like, you know, all of those, all of those um, conversations that we have all fantasized about having at one point in our lives with somebody, should we ever meet again? And, and, and neither of them can do it because... I think it's also like, what, you know, what would the point be? If he told her, here's why I didn't write, or, he, or she could say, why didn't you write? Then, then, then what would that even mean? Like, what, what is he supposed to do, like leave his family? I just think it's, I, 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 I agree, there's the regret because they play their theme. That's their love theme that comes up at the end, when she drives away. But it's, it's, it's different than the ending of Casablanca, right?
1: Yes, uh, the, the ending of Casablanca is, is, is a rejection of a certain kind of happiness in life for an embrace of another. Because it's it's better for it's better for the world versus the individual, uh, but in umbrellas of Cherbourg, it's medium okay for both individuals. You know, it it is what it is. It's it's um it's a you had to be there story set to music.
0: Yes, and I think that you know it. it uh, when I know you well enough that when people say to you in regular life, well, it is what it is. You're like, you're, you might think, what does that mean? But this really is it. The, the end of this film really is, it is what it is set to music. So let me ask you this. Do you think, so you think at the end guy still loves her? He, he doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. You think he still loves her? Yeah. Un- undoubtedly.
1: I mean, the, the first reason is, is because of the music, I really, I believe I buy the music as a viewer and what it's trying to tell me.
0: And what about, and so what about his reaction to like the tree and stuff like that? Like, you know, he can't, he can't bring himself to talk about things.
1: It's his love for her is the reason why all these things, even some base emotion about the beauty of the tree. It's, it's why these things are radioactive for him. It's why he doesn't even want to touch them with gloves on. It's it's because these things are true love and he can't, he can't approach them without pain or without harm.
0: And so he, so he puts on the, the, the costume or the disguise of, of you know, detachment and irony, you know, because if he starts going down that road, he's going to become a blubbering mess.
1: The, the dramatic irony is in, is in the music. You you're pointed out that it's their theme at the end that, that swells up. And I think that part of the thesis of the film is that you can love somebody, but be, be apart from them, not, not connected to them.
0: And going back to Casablanca, so it's almost like at the end of the film, he does what Rick does at Rick's Cafe American, which is put on this, this veneer of, of cynicism, and when he's cruel to Ingrid Bergman, to show that he's superior to it, in a way. One is to save the world, and one is to save himself. Guy. Well, I mean, in the is middle of, in the middle of Casablanca, in the middle of Casablanca, he's deliberately cruel to her, to show that he's superior, he's not going he doesn't want to open that door on himself again. Yes. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. If you haven't seen it in a long time, please give it a watch. It's streaming now on the Criterion channel. Mike, that was a great conversation. I'm so glad you know French.
1: It's a wonderful movie. Uh, if you think that if you think you're think you going to be off-put by them seeing the lines, you got to give this movie at least five minutes. By minute six, you will forget what's happening. You'll only remember at the end.
0: 100%. Please follow us on Twitter at 15MINfilm. Subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, everybody. Take care.